This morning, the passage that we're going to be reading from is Nehemiah 6, starting with verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at the guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. If you guys could be in prayer for Connie Birch's family. Her husband had a heart attack on Friday and he's currently on life support. She's heading to the hospital now with several of our elders, and so we want to lift her up in prayer this morning. Father, we lift up our sister Connie to you and her family, asking God for a miracle as Bill lays in the hospital bed. And we pray, Lord, for her sons and her granddaughter during this time. Father, that your peace that surpasses understanding may fill them that your presence may be with them at this time. Thank you, Lord, for our church community, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and discernment as to how to serve her and her family at this time. Uh, for those who you call to this work, um, may you just place it on their heart to go about reaching out to her. And may she feel the love of you as well as the love from her church. In Jesus' name. As Helen read the end of chapter 6 and the first few verses of chapter 7, uh, many of you are probably thanking God she didn't read through verse 73 because that's the amount of verses that we're going to cover this morning. And you don't have to worry, I'm not reading all of those names either. I'm just going to point out some observations from these names and then it'll be really brief towards the end of the message. But we're just going to start out here, uh, verse 15, chapter 6. It says, So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And so in our Gregorian calendar, this date is September 21st, 444 BC. And that's when this wall in Jerusalem was completely rebuilt. And what many in those days thought would be just an impossibility, that there's no way that this was going to happen and despite all the hostility that Nehemiah faced from the outside, from all those surrounding neighboring people groups that did not want to see this done, and all the hostility and adversity that he was facing inside the walls, because he had quite a few things happening inside the walls with people taking advantage of poor people and things like that, that the mission of finishing this wall is just very unlikely, which is 
a great place to be when you're looking at the works of God because how else is this work going to be achieved if not for the hand of God? There's just no possible way. And so you look at everything that needed to be in place for this to come to fruition. For King Artaxerxes to bless this project was a miracle in itself because these were a Jewish group that did not want to be ruled over so therefore was rebelling against him. And so Nehemiah was very, very wise in how he approached the king about how to present this to the king. You read back in the earlier chapters of Nehemiah that he doesn't mention my Jewish race or anything like that. What does he say? He says, the graves of my father. And so he kind of presents this in such a way that the king is going to receive this. And who put Nehemiah in that place in the first place as cupbearer to the king? God put him there, right? And so he says, my father's graves lies in ruins. And then the king finds favor in Nehemiah, his cupbearer, his faithful servant. And he asks him, hey, what do you want? And Nehemiah goes straight into prayer and God reveals to him in wisdom what he needs. You're going to need travel papers. You're going to need materials to rebuild this wall. And God even blesses him with things that he doesn't even ask for, like a military escort. He didn't ask for that. And so God provides all of this for this long journey, 800 to 900 miles from Susa to Jerusalem. And then he gets to the wall. And when he's at the wall, he goes on and he surveys this wall for himself. And he finds that this wall is really, really messed up. And here you have a guy with no prior experience of building this wall. He's not a city planner. He's not an architect. He's not a contractor. He's none of these things. Yet, how is he going to do this huge job of rebuilding the defenses of a city? How is he going to inspire a people that has been oppressed for decades, living as an oppressed people for generations? How is he going to inspire people that have been pushed down for so long to rise up and to rebuild all of this. It's only by the hand of God. You go back 52 days, August 1st, 444 BC, and you ask Nehemiah, hey Nehemiah, when do you think you're going to finish this wall? There's no way in his mind that he was going to say, 52 days, I'll get this done in 52 days. It's just not even in his head. It is only by the hand of God. So we know that the wall was finished in 52 days. Then what happened? Verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. All of Israel's enemies recognized that God was behind this. And you notice how their tone has changed. You look back to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1, through with verse 3, and this is Sanballat, when Sanballat was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Just mocking and belittling what the Jews were trying to do, led by Nehemiah here. And how did Nehemiah respond? You notice that he responds with prayer and action. 
prayer and action. In chapter 4, verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. God answered Nehemiah's prayer, prayer and action. Verse 9, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Praying, he's guarding, he's building the wall simultaneously. And this serves as a really important reminder to us as we go about serving God. That whenever we go about doing God's work, we will face opposition. And during those times, we need to pray and we need to take action. We need to do both. We need to do both of these things. And what I see in many people is that they do one or they don't do either. And if there is a formula for accomplishing the miraculous, it's this. Prayer and action. Because If you look at all of the biblical heroes that we look at in the Bible, you look at any hero that you have in the faith, in the Christian faith, all of them have this. Prayer and action. They have both. And once your opposition recognizes God behind what you do, this realization sets in and they just aren't as arrogant as they once were, are they? They start seeing things. And here's something for us to understand. When people don't see God behind what we're doing, there's a tendency for them not to change. And they start just chalking it up to things like luck or coincidence or karma. They like using those words. And so they remain in that arrogant, self-confident selfishness when something can be just explained away in physical ways, in physical manners. Then it's probably out of our flesh. It was probably done our way. See why it's so challenging for some people to understand, to accept the gospel? Because they rely so heavily on their physical lenses, on their physical interpretations to those things which are actually spiritual. So those things that are spiritual can't be deciphered by these physical methods alone. How does one who solely relies on the physical explain this? Feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. If that's all you are, if you're just relying on scientific methods, and so you're just all about the physical world, you would agree that it's about survival of the fittest and natural selection, wouldn't you? You would agree on that. And if that's the agreeable thing in the physical world, then isn't it a contradiction to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked? It is. You need to be consistent and not just flip-flop when it's convenient for you. That if you want to stay in the physical world and say everything's science and everything's in the physical world, it has to be evidence, it has to be empirical evidence as to why I believe what I believe, then you shouldn't be clothing the naked and feeding the hungry. But yet something is driving you to do that and to have compassion for things like that. Sometimes we get too caught up in the physical world and it stunts what is happening in the spiritual and you look at when the Israelites battled the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And many of you are familiar with this story. It's the story of David and Goliath. And in this story, I want to point out just how physically oriented the Israelites were in looking at what was happening before them. 
So much so that they're taking on these verbal abuses and this taunting from Goliath because they just saw no physical way for them to defeat that guy. Because in that guy was a guy who is bigger than anyone in their military, who is more experienced, who is more skilled, who has more ability than anybody in the Israeli army. So this guy just comes out and he just starts mocking these people, just making fun of these people. And here are the Israelites just stuck in their physical world, just looking at who can possibly take that guy down. But see, God doesn't just work in the physical world. Who will look to God when things in the physical world seem impossible to overcome? And in 1 Samuel 17, we find that it's David. But who is it for us today? Who among us is able to look to God to come through for us when we face these insurmountable circumstances that are before us in the world? Let me just bring up one to you because everybody is talking about this regardless of your faith and regardless if you believe in God or not. Everyone is talking about sex trafficking nowadays. You can see it on the billboards all over as you drive through the Bay Area. You can see it on legislation. You can see it on the news. Everyone's talking about this. Now the Freedom Summit it was just last weekend and it was in Levi's Stadium. So this is the biggest summit regarding modern day slavery in the world. And I love the co-founders of that organization. They are great people. This is not an indictment on them or their organization. What I want to point out is the Christian church. Because I've never heard so much talk about an evil with so little prayer and so little action. A ton of talk. There are people talking about this all the time. But I hear very little about prayer meetings about it. And I hear very little actual action about it. But people just love talking about it. And some churches, they're all prayer, no action. Some churches are all action and no prayer. Some are neither. And the worst at it all are those who just look at this from a physical perspective. Because if people don't realize that it's a spiritual battle, there's no way that that battle's going to be won. We are just simply staring at a Goliath. Trying to figure out how am I going to physically take that giant out without a clue that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we come up with all these grand plans of how we're going to change legislation of making penalties worse for criminals and the Johns and the Pims and all this kind of stuff. And we're going to have rehab houses and rescue centers and all this stuff and all this physical stuff, which is all great, but it's on the action side. And if you don't battle it with prayer, you're just looking at a Goliath. And how in the world are you going to overtake that? Now, look at the rest of the verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that I just read from verse 25. Let's look at 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When we look at the overwhelming problems we face in our communities, in our city, in our world, if we can't say that God did that, 
that God did that, then you know what? We're going to be stuck with natural outcomes when the supernatural solutions are right in front of us with God. See, God is not all that complicated. We look to all of these things that we've created, all these innovations and all this technology and all this kind of stuff, and we pat ourselves on the back at how great we are. Now you look back to 1 Samuel 17 again, and you can see the evidences of this, of of Saul just relying on the physical. Look at how he incentivizes someone from his military to go fight Goliath. And this is what he says, verse 25. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. You see how he's just kind of throwing all the physical enticements here and when David volunteered to take on Goliath Saul said in verse 33 you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth and so Saul just continues to look at the physical around him while David looks to the Lord verse 37 David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul keeps looking to the physical. And here's an example of how we pat ourselves on the back with our creations and our innovations and our technologies when God can just use the most simple of things to take down giants. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor... He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go. You see those innovative creations, those awesome technologies, bronze helmet, coat of mail, armor. And what does David, the man of God, resort to? Look at verse 40. Then he took his staff, just a long piece of wood, in his hand and chose five smooth stones, rocks, from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling, a piece of leather, was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Just simple God. Not some technologically innovative creation. Just with rocks and leather, David defeated Goliath and the Philistines saw God behind David. They weren't confident in themselves anymore and they ran. They recognized God's presence with Israel. When people told David, look at that giant. There's no way you're going to win. And when people looked at Nehemiah and said, everyone outside of this wall hates us and they're coming in on us and they want to take over and they want to kill us. And then there are people inside this wall who are mistreating the poor it's a time of famine and we're not getting fed some people are having to sell their kids to slavery just to eat some people are causing their daughters to be sold as second wives and concubines and you see all the horrible things happening inside the walls and we're having horrible things happening outside of the wall there's no way you're going to build this silly wall then enters God where the only explanation for David slaying Goliath, for Nehemiah rebuilding the wall with this oppressed people, is God. Do we expect God to show up in here? See, people aren't supposed to be able to fully explain what happens in here, in the physical world. They're not supposed to be able to say these things. 
And if there is a physical explanation to everything that happens here, to everything that happens in your life, then where is God in it? And if people can't see God in here, in us, that's when people start looking at religion. And they point to the religious institution and they point to the religious structure, the church, that we're just being religious. And it's something that's derived from people, that it was created from people. And people created this to cope with whatever, to have answers to the afterlife, to have answers to this or that, or for whatever reason that they're coping with these things, because they don't have answers in the physical world at that time, and science didn't develop or evolve as much as it did to this day. So that's why they had to resort to those things. And so you see why people just get stuck at looking at religion. And so that when they see that we worship God, because we here know that God is here with us, but those outside won't be able to see him, and how they will interpret that is that we're just simply doing a religion. That our worship is simply just singing. That our acts of service are just simply acts of philanthropy and humanitarianism. That our giving is just that of generosity. And unless we live a with God life, doing works empowered by God. There's no difference from us as the church of God to those organizations out there that are philanthropic, humanitarian, that sing, that serve the community and give to good causes. There's just no difference. See, what are our works built on? Most of us are really good people here, I think. I really believe that. I think that most of you are just really compassionate people that want to help people, that want to serve people. Especially for those who are in need, you want to help those people. Most of us are that way here. But what is our foundation? Because if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, it won't amount to very much spiritually. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What foundation have you built your work on? What foundation has our church built its ministries on? We are in desperate need of your prayers as we take action. I find that we do take quite a bit of action in our church with the homeless community, with the refugee community, with kids that are at risk in our community, with the school system. Like We have our fingers and our hands in so many things in terms of action. We also need your prayers. We need your prayers to fight against any opposition that we face. For any of our opposition to realize that God is behind our work. That it's not just us. Now, once they realize that God is behind our work, does that stop the opposition? Absolutely not, right? It does not happen. Look at verse 17, back to Nehemiah chapter 6. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. 
For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So the wall's done. Everything's done. And so you'd think, all right, the opposition's going to stop. The work's done already. But that is simply just not the case. Here's a guy that is busy taking to social media. Like he's tweeting about every comment that he has and he's putting Facebook posts, he's putting pictures on Instagram. He's just like getting it all out there and he's causing all of these conversations to happen, which if you just boil it down, it's just a bunch of political maneuvering that he's doing. He's just trying to place himself in a place where when Nehemiah takes off, I want things to go back to how they used to be. Nehemiah observes all this, so who does Nehemiah talk to? Because Tobiah is talking to everybody else in Judah, but who does Nehemiah talk to? God. Look at verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So no political maneuvering on Nehemiah's part. He goes straight to God. Do you have any opposition in your life that is getting in the way of what God has called you to? That they're just kind of causing obstacles. They're just kind of slowing you down. They're putting these speed bumps here. I encourage you to talk to God about it. That he'll sort it out. See, the wall was done. And Tobiah is still trying to cause problems. It was already done. Ever have that go on in your life? You have something that's just done in your life and you thought it was settled and things are okay and you're moving forward, but then this opposition is still trying to cause problems. And here's a really disturbing thing. Oftentimes it's usually someone that's close to you that is doing that. And it's just like in this story in Nehemiah 6 because Tobiah was a Jew. Tobiah's a Jew. And so you'd think that this guy, if anybody, would be in support of the wall being rebuilt. But he wasn't. Now why is that? It's the same thing that happens today. If you ever want to find out somebody's motivation or incentive as to why they're doing something not good, you follow the money. You just follow the money. You follow the money trail, and that will help you figure out someone's motives and incentives as why they're doing what they're doing. And so what do we know about Tobiah? We know that Tobiah was a wealthy man. And we read in verse 17 how the nobles of Judah sent these many letters of correspondence to Tobiah. And Tobiah sent them back. And so they had this ongoing correspondence back and forth with each other. And then you look at verse 18 and we read that many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was related to them by marriage. Right? And so what's going on here? What's been going on for all of human history? Someone in power wants to marry someone else in power so that they combine it and they're more powerful and they have allies. It's the same thing. So princess of Spain, hey, I want you to go marry the prince of England because, you know, if we do this, then we have an alliance and we won't attack each other and we'll take over more of the world. And so it's the same thing. And so here Tobiah is aligning with together in marriage, aligning with other people in money. And so here you're just finding out here. And so you look back to chapter 5, Who was Nehemiah very angry at when he heard the outcry of the people? The really wealthy Jews who were taking advantage of the poor. 
That's who he was really angry at. The wealthy Jews who gave no other choice to those poorer people but to have them mortgage their vineyards and fields and houses just so that they could eat. The wealthy Jews who forced the poorer Jews into slavery and forced their daughters to be second wives and concubines. He was very angry at them. Well, who do you think those wealthy Jews were? Some of them relatives and friends of Tobiah. That's why this guy's fighting against them. He doesn't want them to go against that structure. Do you guys see the drama in the Bible? Like, who says the Bible's boring? I mean, look, this is like incredible. It's like novellas, right? Now, what was in those letters between Tobiah and the people of Judah? The letters of collusion. They're just going back and forth. And within those letters, you can be sure that they were writing about how they were going to return things that the way they used to be so that they could stay in power, so that they could keep their wealth. And they were writing about what they were going to do. You know, when Nehemiah leaves, this is what we need to do. And anyone who knows anything about politics in any setting knows that this is true. Whether it's in families or corporations, nonprofit organizations, churches. It's the true in all this stuff. You make some headway into how things look on the outside, but behind or under all of it all is this kind of undercurrent of old ways that doesn't change. Take our city as an example. City of Oakland. No matter how much administration changes, why is it the same? Why is it the same? People in the office are changing all the time and they have all these different ideas and what they want to do and all this kind of stuff. But the th reason why it doesn't change is that undercurrent doesn't change. And so you see the same things that happen. You see the same crime rates. You see the same kind of education or lack of education. You see all these types of things that don't change. And the same thing is for Oakland schools. Because the faces and leadership always change. But then the overall thing doesn't change. Why is that? There's this undercurrent that hasn't changed. And there are really good people who want it to change. Those elected officials in our city, in our board of education, are all really good people that want to see change. That's why they're there. They want to see it. But then there's this thing that they're working against, that they can't fight against this current that's already established, and they can't overcome that. How many superintendents has Oakland schools had over the past 10 years? I think it's at least five. Correct me if I'm wrong. Five superintendents in the Oakland school district. Why? Because they can't beat what they're going against. It's so frustrating, isn't it? You're up there and you're trying to make reforms and you can't. Same things happen in churches. Same exact thing. I do a fair amount of church consulting nowadays, and I'll see churches, they change their bylaws and their government structures and their boards, and they change their pastors and all the staff, and all the stuff on the outside that you can see change, changes, but it's the same thing that's happening. Why? Because there are these forces within, these undercurrents that are prohibiting a complete overhaul. And so the car looks totally different on the outside, but that engine on the inside is still the same broken down, rotten engine. So what is Nehemiah going to do about this? Because he can change the leadership structure, as we're going to read here in verses 1 through 3. 
Now it came to pass when the wall was built and I had set up the doors and the porters and the signers and the Levites were appointed that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch and every one to be over against his house. So Nehemiah united, empowered those who were faithful and feared God above many. And the reforms that were happening, he knew that all this change would go back to the old ways if he didn't put God-fearing leadership in place. So he rebuilt the structure from the top down, but he knew that that's not just all he needed to do because that's not enough. As we can see in all of our different organizations and churches and city government and all that, we know that changing in leadership is simply not enough. That undercurrent needs to be changed or wiped out, and it wouldn't be enough just to change from the top down. So what does he have to do? He has to go from the bottom up to and just kind of smash it out. So what does this look like? He's going to revitalize the city from the bottom up. And he does this by repopulating the city. He brings in a bunch of new blood in to cleanse that old blood and to dilute all that toxin, all that undercurrent that's from within. Now, I'm not suggesting that you take out all the people of Oakland and you put new people in here and then gentrify the whole city. I'm not saying that because that's not what happened here. What I'm saying is, You fill it in with enough people that you dilute those undercurrents so that those toxins aren't as concentrated, right? You kind of dilute them out. And that's the same thing that I'm sharing with churches. You can change this top structure and stuff like that, but the most important thing for you guys to do is to grow, is to multiply, is to be built up. Because once you start getting these new people in here, all the power structures that be that aren't necessarily from staff or above but that are just these undercurrents, they get diluted, And so when we're looking at school reform, when we're looking at city reforms and things like that, this is something to keep in mind, like, oh, the Bible is just nice and all this stuff. No, there's some really practical things that Nehemiah is showing us here. You want to change stuff? You don't just change the leadership. You got to change the bottom, too. You got to change from the bottom up and the top, and you got to smash all that stuff away. Just really great practical stuff. And so we see this going on here in chapter 7, and This register of the genealogy in chapter 7, Nehemiah pulled from Ezra chapter 2. And from this register, he had an idea of who he had and how they would help in reviving the city. And it's much like here at our church. We take a look at who we have here and ask how each person can be used by God to help here. And so it was more than just the wall being rebuilt. It was more than just establishing a community. Our church is more than just buildings and gathering as a community. We aren't here just for us. Because if we have that mentality, we will start developing our own undercurrent, and then we won't be able to change things, and they'll become toxic. It'll be the same blood, and we won't have people coming in to dilute all those bad habits and those bad ways of thinking and all that kind of stuff. So we need to continually move and change and grow so that we don't get stuck in these ways. There are so many people who need the gospel. And like those in Nehemiah's time, we can tend to lose sight of why we're here when we sense that this is all we have to do. Just gather on a Sunday, us. 
you know, and every once in a while I'll have a barbecue and every once in a while we'll go to a home group and every once in a while we'll go do something for the homeless or serve some other people group or whatever. And then that's just all of it. Those are just pieces. Those are just parts. There's so much more to be done. See, Nehemiah knew that this was more than a wall. It was more than just building a community. This was going to be an example of God's glory at work in his people. It was so much bigger than that. See, what are we building here? Is it just community? Because you could do that anywhere. Just start a meetup group and you'll build a community. That's just part of it. How are we going to be an example of God's glory in his people? Do we have God's presence in us? It's more than just leadership structures. It's more than just having staff do things or elders do things or or people that are in ministry leadership do things. We all have a part in contributing to making this a vibrant, growing, thriving community for God's glory. It has to also come from the people. And each one of you is important, just like everyone in Nehemiah chapter 7 is important. I want to point out their importance to you. These people aren't just mentioned once in the Bible. They're also in Ezra chapter 2. These people are mentioned twice in the Bible. Some of us are probably thinking like, whoa, that was a lot of ink wasted just to write these names. And like, you know, here's the awesome thing about these people. These are pioneers. These are pioneers who heard the call of God to leave what was comfortable, to leave what was familiar to them in Babylon to be faithful in Jerusalem. And if you think about this, if you've been living at a place for decades and for generations, you're comfortable there. You know where to shop for things. You know how to bank. You know where the post office is. You know the roads. You know where to go and where not to go. You know all these things. You're familiar with it. You're comfortable in it. To uproot, to go to a place that is just being reestablished, who has been oppressed for decades and to get there, this is a very challenging thing. And this was why the walls were ultimately rebuilt. It wasn't to rebuild the walls. It wasn't just for a community to be in there. It was for all of these people that you find here in Nehemiah 7 and Ezra chapter 2. Not just to be a place of safety and comfort and familiarity, There were some really valuable lessons that these people learned. And these are lessons that I think that we can gain from. See, it taught them about working hard. That they had to pray hard and they had to work hard. That their actions needed a lot of effort in them. It taught them about working as a community for one another. That they couldn't just be self-absorbed and think of themselves as self-important. That they had to all pull together. It taught them how to work through adversity. That, yeah, we have problems on the outside, we have problems on the inside, but we can overcome these things together and with God. And it taught them how to work until this mission is accomplished. So may we not lose sight of what God is teaching us here as we work hard, and we pray hard, in ministering to each other in the church as well as beyond our church. May we learn to work together and to work through the challenges that we have on the outside, as well as what's happening inside. May we be faithful in the work that God has called us to until we've done them very well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
Father, thank you for your servant, Nehemiah, for David, just for these examples of people who walk by faith and not just by sight in terms of looking at just the physical world, Lord, but they are in tune with what is happening in the spiritual. And we ask, Lord, for that type of wisdom, for that type of discernment within us as we navigate how to love people, to love our community, to love our city. Thank you for the opportunity, God, for serving you in that way. We're humbled that you would choose us for that. In Jesus' name, amen.